Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. This podcast is on the deplorable situation of homelessness in the United States. Not only have the various federal, state and local governments failed to provide affordable housing and assistance, resulting in millions of people experiencing homelessness throughout the year, but local governments are criminalising acts that homeless people cannot help but do, for instance, sleeping outside, which are in effect laws that criminalise being homeless. Local governments are also criminalising food sharing so that people are prohibited from providing the homeless with free food. Not only are these policies immoral, but they may be unconstitutional and in breach of international law. With me today, I have Eric Taz, a senior attorney from the National Law Centre on Homelessness and Poverty. Eric focuses on human rights and children's rights programs, and is currently the chair of the US Human Rights Network's training committee and on the steering committee of the Human Rights at Home campaign. Hi, Eric. Thank you for joining us on Gravity today. Thanks for having me. Last year, the cities of Portland, Los Angeles, and Seattle, as well as the state of Hawaii, declared a state of emergency, generally reserved for natural disasters, with respect to homelessness. While the federal government provides housing and food assistance, this is either inadequate or unavailable for the majority of homeless people in the country. What is the current state of homelessness in this country, and what are the main impediments that homeless people face in obtaining necessary government benefits? Um, well, the, the current state of homelessness is, uh, is a crisis, as these uh, communities have uh, recognized. We have an estimated um, uh, 600,000 people who are homeless on any given night, according to HUD's point-in-time count, um, which we think is a vast undercount, um, but, uh, you know, it's done in January on one night, and um, they they don't go into a lot of places where um, where homeless people might be found, but you know it is a uh, uh, the best estimate that uh, the government has of how many people are given in, on that one night in January more than half a million people, and then over the course of the year um, we estimate that many millions of people uh, experience homelessness, um, and um, that you know there are numbers from the Department of Education showing that uh, about 1.3 million uh, students were homeless last year, and those, that's just school-aged children. Um, that's using a broader definition of homelessness than uh, the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development uses. Uh, that includes students who are living in uh, low-cost motels, who are doubled up with family and friends. Um, and so uh, it, when those numbers are included, um, we think that uh, the numbers might be closer to 7 million, 10 million um, people who experience uh, homelessness or severely inadequate housing over the course of the year. Um, so it's a major problem. Um, part of the and then part of the, the the greatest challenge, I guess, in terms of addressing it, is that uh, the necessary housing assistance just isn't there for people. Um, only one in four people who are eligible uh, by income for federal housing resources actually receive them. So uh, because we don't have the public housing stock that we once did, um, we don't have the vouchers that, um, that would be necessary to make up that gap. And so whereas public housing really used to be uh, seen as housing of last resort, that if you um, simply couldn't make ends meet otherwise, um, you know, that the, the federal government would be there to provide, um, 
you know, a basic necessity uh, that everybody needs to survive, basic shelter, um, that would be a resource that would be there for you. But since the uh, late 1970s, they, uh, the HUD budget for affordable housing has been cut by more than half, um, and uh, we've been losing uh, tens of thousands of units of public housing due to deterioration um, or demolition um, over the past 30 years. Um, and while vouchers have made up some of uh, that difference, um, as I said, what used to be seen as um, an entitlement housing of last resort for everybody who needs it, now only one in four people who need it is actually able to get the resources that they need. So that means three in four uh, eligible uh, renters are uh, not getting the resources they need. They are stretching their budgets every month. Um, 25% uh, of, uh, or sorry, more than 50% of um, uh, low-income renters are paying more than 50% of their monthly income on uh, housing every month. That means they're just one missed paycheck, one medical emergency, one broken down car away from homelessness. And once you become homeless, it's so much more difficult to get out of homelessness than it would be if you were able to, to prevent it in the first place. Because once you lose your home, then you have to focus so much of your energy on simply trying to survive every day. Uh, you know, where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to get my next meal? If you have kids, how are you going to get them to school on time? Um, if you have a job, how are you going to get to your job? Um, how are you going to maintain your appearance so that you don't get fired from your job? Um, and, you know, where is safe and legal for me to be at any time during the day? Will I get arrested for loitering? Will I get arrested for, you know, quote-unquote camping or sleeping uh, in a public place when there's no adequate alternative place to go? Um, so, and then once you have that arrest on your record, it becomes infinitely more difficult to get a job, to get a housing application through. Um, and how long uh, does that generally take to get a housing application through? And do you have to provide necessary, um, ID for that? And may homeless people have an impediment in providing the requisite identification documents in order to get their application accepted? Sure. So the average, um, homeless person um, is homeless for anywhere from about five to eight months. You know, people uh, are trying to get out of homelessness. And most people who are homeless, you wouldn't recognize as homeless because they are trying to maintain their appearance. It's only um, the very chronically homeless individuals um, who have really slipped through the cracks of the system um, and aren't having their needs met that people see as homeless and who, you know, are homeless for, for longer periods of time. Um, so, uh, and yes, absolutely, uh, you know, photo IDs um, are things that people who are homeless frequently lose, whether they are, um, you know, stolen or uh, swept up by the police or by the Department of, um, you know, Public Works as, as part of a, a sweep of a homeless encampment. Um, and once you lose that ID, uh, again, uh, because you don't have a permanent address, because you don't have any other documentation, um, it becomes very difficult to get an ID again. And in some cases, you can't even get into 
the public buildings where you would need to go to get the identification because you don't have identification. So it's it's this really terrible, uh, uh, you know, Kafkaesque cycle that people get into. Um, and then once you have that, um, again, in some cities, you know, you might uh, be eligible for resources. You might be able to get them. But in other cities, uh, you know, the waiting list for public housing even is uh, or for vouchers is closed. The, the waiting list is 10 years long, and they aren't even accepting new applicants because there are so many people already on the waiting list. So, um, you know, it's anybody's guess uh, as to how long it might take to actually get resources to, to get you out of homelessness. Most people exit homelessness uh, on their own um, because they, they aren't able to access those uh, federal or state or local resources. Now, you mentioned police sweeps taking homeless people's property. Now, obviously, if you're homeless, you necessarily have to uh, find a place for your personal belongings, which might be in a public place. Now, if the police are taking personal identification, and I've read reports that they're also taking uh, medicines, including medical equipment such as wheelchairs from homeless people, could this be at all framed as a Fourth Amendment violation that would pass a reasonable expectation of privacy standard? And if not, is there any other legal redress from the, for the police taking such irreplaceable property from homeless people? Uh, yes, absolutely. These uh, There have been numerous cases brought under the Fourth, Fifth, Fourteenth uh, Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, um, First Amendment as well. Um, so uh, there are issues of uh, you know your right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, and not to be deprived of your um, property without due process of law. Um, those uh, there have been a number of cases where uh, homeless people whose belongings were taken um, have received uh, large settlements. Um, because the city did not provide adequate notice, did not provide any adequate means of um, retrieving the belongings. They just, you know, threw them into a dumpster. Um, and this, uh, despite these cases, these kinds of sweeps still go on all the time across the country. Um, you also have the Eighth Amendment issues, that uh, it's cruel and unusual punishment uh, to punish somebody for an unavoidable uh, life activity, sleeping, that we all have to do every day um, just because we are human beings. Um, and if there isn't an adequate place for somebody to do that, um, then they have to do it in a public place. And to criminally punish them for doing that is, is cruel and unusual punishment under our Eighth Amendment. Uh, international human rights monitors have recognized it as cruel and human degrading treatment um, under international standards, you know, just one notch below torture because um, really, you know, if, uh, if you are forcing somebody into sleep deprivation under penalty of law, um, you know, sleep deprivation is torture. And, and that's essentially what the, the state is doing um, to, uh, to people who are homeless, um, forcing them to choose between either not sleeping or going to jail. Um, so it, it, it's a, a very real human rights issue. Um, uh, the chair of the UN Human Rights Committee, Sir Nigel Rodley, who is also the former UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, uh, he focused on this issue during the U.S.'s last hearing before the Human Rights Committee, and he said he was simply baffled that, uh, first, that people could be without housing in the wealthiest country in the world, and then that they would... Uh, 
be criminally punished for not having a home. Um, so this is an issue that's definitely gotten the attention of the the global uh, human rights community as well as the domestic civil rights community. Um, and the Department of Justice uh, actually just filed a brief in one of our cases in Boise earlier in uh, 2015 um, saying, you know, it should be uncontroversial that punishing conduct that is a universal and unavoidable consequence of being human violates the Eighth Amendment. Sleeping is a life-sustaining activity, i.e. it must occur at some time in some place. If a person literally has nowhere else to go, the enforcement of that anti-camping ordinance against that person criminalizes her for being homeless. So it's the international human rights community. It's our own Department of Justice. Um, they all recognize that this is um, cruel, unusual punishment, cruel and human degrading treatment, um, legally wrong, morally wrong, and not something that we should be doing here in the, in the wealthiest country in the world. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that people are now <laughs> saying that, but ha- but on the ground, how many cities are actually criminalizing homelessness? And is this trend continuing despite the excoriation of the United States on the global level, despite the fact that it might be a violation, of, and it is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, and it's possibly, I would say, a violation of ratified treaties of the uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Convention Against Torture, Yes, um, and, and indeed, it's not just you recognizing that it might be a violation, but the, the federal government, the Department of Justice, and the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness and um, and HUD have all said that it uh, may violate our treaty obligations. And in fact, this is the first time that any domestic practice um, has been characterized as a potential human rights treaty violation by these domestically focused agencies. Um, so it, it really is getting recognized in this way. Um, but yes, it does uh, still happen. Um, we have cities across the country, um, 57% of cities prohibit camping, um, in particular public places. Another uh, 18% of cities impose citywide bans on sleeping in public, and 27% of cities uh, prohibit sleeping in particular public places. Um, there's more than three-quarters of cities prohibit uh, loitering, uh, loafing, um, begging in public, um, and uh, about 10% of cities prohibit uh, even sharing food with uh, people, uh, homeless people in public. Um, and these numbers have gone up dramatically over the past few years. Uh, we did surveys in 2011 and 2014, um, and over that period, um, citywide bans on camping increased by 60%. Um, bans on sleeping in particular places went up by 30%. Um, bans on loitering, loafing, and vagrancy increased by 35%. Um, and bans on sleeping in vehicles increased by 119%. And, and sleeping in your car is often kind of the last resort for somebody who's lost everything else already. Um, and so, you know, the, just the fact that you see that kind of reaction, um, you know, that people are getting more and more desperate trying to uh, just piece together the lies, but uh, the community's response to that is not, you know, to try and help them and to get them a, a place where they can be not living in a car, but instead to simply pass a law that um, makes it a crime for them to try and survive in their car um, is it really demonstrates where many communities 
are coming from. And and the worst part about this is that not only is it legally and morally wrong, um, but as a policy matter, it's just very poor uh, policy. Uh, it costs more to arrest somebody, to give them a ticket, to house them overnight in jail, um, and then uh, and all the other costs that are involved with keeping somebody on the street, emergency room costs, et cetera, um, than it simply would to provide them with housing. Uh, and community after community um, has found this, that by using housing first strategies, which bring people in off the streets uh, without any preconditions, not requiring them to get sober first, not requiring them to pass a criminal background check or anything like that, um, that they are actually saving um, money over having people out on the streets. Uh, so if communities would simply look at this data and understand that, you know, they could either spend their money on police services or on housing, uh, and they would actually spend less money on housing, um, and it would, you know, uh, make their entire community stronger and healthier as a result, then it, it becomes the clear choice. But for too many communities, uh, they aren't looking at that, that data clearly, and they aren't making um, the proper choices. Now, according to the center's own report, No Safe Place, 9% of cities have also criminalized food sharing, imposing fines and even jail sentences on people and organizations that want to provide the homeless and hungry free food, which <laughs> is very hard to believe. But can you tell us a bit more about this deplorable practice and its effects? Sure. Again, it's um, an attempt by cities to drive um, homeless people out of public view and, and the people in where they can't criminally punish the individuals themselves. Um, you know, they claim that by having services available to homeless people, by making food available to them um, in public places, downtown areas, public parks, um, that it's actually attracting the homeless people there. Uh, and therefore they say we will ban the the practice of being able to share food or we will so heavily regulate it that people won't be able to do it in any case. Um, and it's it's really ironic because on the one hand you have uh, you know cutbacks to food stamp programs and other um, government assistance programs and uh, you know politicians saying, well, it's not the government's job to provide this. This should be private charities who are doing this. But then when the charities try and do it, they say, no, no, actually, you can't do it either. Um, we just don't, we want to pretend that poverty does not exist in our community. And so we will do everything we can to just push it out of public view. Um, and these laws, again, have been invalidated, um, in particular under uh, the First Amendment and some of uh, the Religious Freedom Acts um, that many more uh, conservative members of, uh, you know, the uh, policymakers have been, have pushed through, but, it, you know, using the argument that uh, it's uh, an infringement of their First Amendment religious freedom, um, this is how that, uh, you know, these groups uh, want to uh, perform their ministry is by um, you know, serving the poor and serving them in public place as part of their uh, religious practice to actually do that. Um, and so these uh, these practices have been found to be protected, um, again, and, uh, and most of the laws 
that have been uh, instituted against that have been struck down um, or uh, uh, gotten rid of through settlements. Um, so it's it, it's but it, again it's it's a a really ridiculous uh, response and um, again something that we have brought to the international human rights community. Um, we were actually in a meeting with the UN Commissioner on Human Rights um, uh, a few years ago and explained this problem. And, you know, this is a person who's seen the worst of the worst all around the globe. But when we explained that there were laws that actually punished people for trying to share food with homeless people, her head just went down on the table and, you know, this act of total disbelief. But, uh, no, this is, this is, uh, this is America in, in 2016, um, where where these kinds of things are happening. So the right of free speech, the free exercise of one's religion, uh, they're protected by the First Amendment, and they're also enshrined in numerous international human rights instruments, but so is the right to food. Now, is the U.S. in violation of its international legal obligations by both preventing people that want to share food in the exercise of their either religious or political expression and by imposing an impediment to homeless people obtaining food by then infringing on their right to food? Um, well, the, the State Department would argue that we are not in violation of any legal obligations because we have not yet ratified the Economic and Social Rights Treaty, which uh, has the, the right to food and the right to housing, um, as part of it. Uh, so while um, the freedom of uh, expression, freedom of religion, um, right to be free from cruel and human degrading treatment, those are civil and political rights protections uh, that come out of the, the treaties that we have signed and ratified. Um, we have only signed but we have not yet ratified, not yet fully legally bound ourselves to the Economic and Social Rights Treaty. Um, so while there might be some moral force to, to that argument, um, certainly the State Department would argue that we have not accepted a formal legal obligation uh, under the right to food or the, the right to housing. Um, now, the U.S. is supporting um, its candidacy for the UN Human Rights Council, um, and in doing so, it has said that they you know, fully embrace and support all of the rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a declaration, uh, not a treaty. Um, but again, they, they are careful to point out that that's a kind of policy as a policy matter and not as a formal legal obligation uh, that they're undertaking. Right. I, th I believe it's Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that right. provides the right to adequate housing and food, and it's Article 11 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Now, many state constitutions, including South Africa, have enshrined these as a constitutional right. Now, how can we use international law, even if we're not legally obligated by treaty, to argue for housing as a right under domestic law? Are there any attempts to litigate this currently? Um, there have been a number of attempts, um, uh, none really fully successful. There are some state constitutions um, which provide for a state duty to uh, provide for uh, people who are impoverished or, or lacking basic necessities. Um, and so there have been some efforts under state constitutions to do that. Um, uh, 
And uh, we are also looking at strategies um, to provide remedies for uh, using um, these standards to provide remedies for people. So even if there isn't an actual right to housing found in the Constitution, um, looking at it as uh, in many cases where um, homeless people have been criminalized for sleeping outside, uh, you know, you will uh, fight the law in court. The community will modify the law slightly in order to come into what it thinks is constitutional compliance, um, but it will still be basically, you know, criminally punishing people for trying to survive outside. Um, and, you know, you have to go back to court again and again and again. And we would um, argue that the only real effective remedy there is not to let the community keep modifying its law, but uh, to have to actually provide housing. Um, and that's the only thing that's going to cure the underlying constitutional violation. So we are looking at strategies like that. Um, but as yet, uh, you know, that no state court and no uh, federal court certainly has found um, that housing is a right under either state or, or local constitutions. Um, in New York, uh, New York State, uh, there is a case um, that uh, finds that uh, there is a basic duty on the um, state to shelter people. That's not a full right to adequate housing, um, but just to to shelter. But that's the the kind of only uh, legal right uh, to shelter um, that exists in in the U.S. I know that a lot of people would say, well, we just can't afford it, and therefore, you know, that it would be bad policy. Now, you said before that the that actually criminalization costs more, aside from, you know, looking at it from a moral standpoint and how unjust it is, uh, that it's actually completely inefficient as well. Now, Scotland enacted the right to housing so that people denied adequate housing can actually sue to enforce such right, and it's been on the books for quite a while now. How has the Scottish model worked? worked in practice? Um, it's, uh, it's been generally successful. Um, if you are homeless in Scotland, you can go in and present yourself to the assistance agency. And you know, unlike in the U.S. where people are looking for any excuse they can to weed you off of the roles, um, in Scotland, it's an affirmative obligation. They understand, you know, it's based on a concept of human rights and the right to housing. Everybody deserves basic shelter. Um, and so they will get you into temporary housing immediately. Um, and then within uh, 90 or 120 days, uh, they will get you into uh, fully appropriate uh, housing uh, with any supportive services that you might need. Um, and it's an obligation on the local governments to um, to plan for the affordable housing needs of their communities and uh, provide the housing for the people who don't otherwise have adequate housing. So there's an actual incentive um, for local communities to be uh, planning for and actually constructing the amount of uh, housing that they need to, to give to people in their communities. Um, and, and this is where one of the other major differences from the U.S. system, where most housing that's being constructed uh, is affordable to only a small percentage of the population. You have lots of luxury condos and McMansions going up, but you don't have housing being built 
for people at the lower ends of the income spectrum. And again, that uh, puts us in a situation where one in four renters is paying more than 50% of their income on housing every month. And it's really that deficit of affordable housing that keeps homelessness growing in this country. Um, and so it's, it's solving that long-term problem of lack of affordable housing um, that's going to, to really make a dent in um, homelessness. But uh, even in the short term, um, as you said, it's, uh, it's much more cost-effective. And some of the communities that have been implementing uh, housing-first policies are even in more, you know, fiscally conservative uh, and fiscally uh, and, and socially conservative communities, but they, they understand that the, the fiscal conservatism um, dictates that they, they be doing programs that actually work and use their community resources wisely. So the state of Utah has reduced chronic homelessness by 91% over the past 10 years. Uh, by instituting these uh, housing first policies, and you know Utah is a, a very conservative state, but it's um, but it's really recognized that it's in their fiscal interest uh, to adopt these kinds of policies. Um, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, again in a in a very conservative state, um, uh, created uh, several hundred units of um, housing first uh, accessible um, housing for for chronically homeless people. And it saved them $1.8 million over the first year alone. And they've documented the reduced number of ER visits, the reduced number of uh, jail uh, nights spent in jail by the, the residents there. Um, and so they are tracking those costs that they have saved. Um, and it's really a matter of bringing those costs out and saying this is really saving us money. The, the problem is, the challenge is that for a local policymaker, you can very easily pass a law that says it's illegal to camp on uh, in the public parks, um, and you don't have to actively uh, account for the cost that that's going to incur to your police budget, to your jail budget. Mm. But when you want to create new housing, you do have to say, where is this money going to come from? Where are we going to cite it in the community? And then deal with all the, the people who don't want you know, affordable housing or, um, you know, housing for homeless people in their backyards. Um, and so it, it's a much more politically difficult thing to do, uh, and that's why many politicians will just choose instead to, to take the easy way out for them, even though it's going to cost their community more, but they don't have to deal with all those challenges if they just criminalize homelessness rather than doing the smart, the right thing to do, which is, is to provide housing. Now, if you criminalise homelessness, you would cause a huge impediment for homeless people to find jobs as they would have criminal records and to keep their jobs as they would be absent while they were detained. It seems as a common misconception that homeless people aren't employed, but according to the National Coalition for the Homeless, they estimate that 44% of homeless people are employed. So while people find themselves homeless because of inadequate government assistance and need to find their own way out, it would seem that they may do so only through employment but then when you effectively criminalize homelessness, you prevent the homeless from obtaining and retaining employment. Not only is this one torture over another, but I don't even see the practical benefit of this to the government or to anyone for that matter. It uh, um, definitely creates, um, as uh, the Department of Justice, again, in their brief um, that they submitted in our case against uh, the city of Boise's anti-camping ordinance, um, you know, they emphasize, quote, 
uh, enforcing these ordinances is poor public policy. Needlessly pushing homeless individuals into the criminal justice system does nothing to break the cycle of poverty or prevent homelessness in the future. Indeed, it, indeed, instead, it imposes further burdens on scarce judicial and correctional resources and can have long-lasting and devastating effects on individuals' lives. So, yeah, it, it just creates this um, crazy cycle where, you know, it's, um, we, we've had reports of people who are literally on their way to a job interview or on their way to uh, accept the housing, get their housing application accepted, um, but were picked up for panhandling or picked up for uh, sleeping on the streets and couldn't make it to that interview. Then, you know, lost that job opportunity, lost that housing opportunity, were out on the streets for longer. Um, and then they have, you know, fines and fees to pay. Uh, they have that criminal record to pay, so they can't be um, saving towards their first month's, last month's rent security deposit because they have to pay off this fine. Um, or they, you know, and with that criminal record, it makes it more difficult to get employment, to get a, a housing application accepted. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's um, it's absolutely backwards policy that does nothing to solve the problem and only makes things worse. Um, but it's it's the, the approach that many communities are taking. Now, when you said that being criminalized for homelessness then is an impediment to getting federal housing, I, I might have misheard you, but when you're homeless and you can't help sleeping in the park, for instance, and then being criminalized for it, that affects you being able to get affordable housing because you're out on the street in the first place not being able to get affordable housing? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, you know, the federal government gives fairly broad discretion to local housing authorities uh, for um, who they can accept into uh, public housing um, or into their voucher programs. Um, and there are only a few uh, very narrow federal crimes that um, bar people from access to federal housing resources, but at the local level, many of those local housing authorities will look at your criminal record um, and, you know, they often don't care whether you were arrested for doing something that's actually dangerous or just simply trying to survive on the street, but they will use that uh, to deny your, your housing application. Um, and there are even some resources that are dedicated uh, for chronically homeless individuals. Um, but the definition of chronic homelessness is such that if you are housed, including by being housed in a in an institution like a jail or a prison, um, then that interrupts the period of time uh, which qualifies you as chronically homeless. So uh, you could be somebody who's been out on the street f for three years you know, successfully avoiding um, police interaction, um, but then if all of a sudden you are arrested, put in jail, um, uh, even for a short period of time, uh, when you come out, then you have to restart the clock that would be get you to be eligible for those federal housing resources for the chronically homeless population. So, um, yeah, it, it can actually, uh, you know, those periods of incarceration and, and generating that criminal record can be an impediment to getting you the very resources you need to get off the streets. How does this affect children in particular? Um, well, so uh, children, um, there are unaccompanied youth who are faced with all these same laws that homeless adults are, um, and so they can be picked up for sleeping on the streets, for loafing, vagrancy, et cetera, panhandling. Um, 
And then they also have to face the additional barriers of status offense laws, so laws that criminalize running away um, or truancy um, or curfew violations in some cities. Um, and all of those are further challenges to, to home, unaccompanied homeless youth, um, and that will often force them into situations that are more dangerous. So because they don't want to have to sleep on the streets and potentially um, get arrested by the police, um, they will choose uh, to double up with somebody, to couch surf, to uh, including, you know, accepting offers from unsavory people uh, who want to take advantage of them, you know, just come into my house for the night, I'll get you off the streets, but then what else is going to come out of that um, and can even lead into sex trafficking and, and worse. Um, so uh, those kinds of problems that make put homeless youth at odds with the police who should be protecting them um, are certainly very dangerous kinds of policies. Um, even for children living in families, again, um, you know, we've seen uh, homeless parents um, who are living with their kids in the car, um, being picked up, taken off to jail, and then those kids get taken into uh, protective custody um, <laughs> and have to go into the foster care system. And it's actually far more expensive to put a child into foster care than it would be, to again, to simply provide the entire family with a house, um, with, a, with an apartment, and to keep that family together with all the benefits that come from a family. And so, you know, again, you see... Uh, politicians who say they they are strong supporters of family values, but uh, our policies really fail to value the families and then keep the family units together um, and instead will punish the parents, uh, punish the children by taking them away from their parents, um, even when, uh, when it makes much more sense and would be much healthier for all involved uh, to keep them together. Um, so, uh, and when homeless, when kids are homeless, um, it's a strong predictor of them being homeless adult as adults as well. Um, it's a challenge for them to get to school. Uh, there are federal laws that protect their rights uh, to go to school, to get transportation to school, to get access to free school meals. But um, some schools don't like to follow those federal laws and make it a challenge for homeless families to get their kids enrolled in school, to keep them in school. Um, and again, that's, that's just causing a, a cycle of homelessness that can be intergenerational. So what is the way forward? Um, well, we are going to be launching a campaign this summer called Housing Not Handcuffs um, that really emphasizes uh, the you know, the pairing of these two issues that, um, one, we need to stop using handcuffs, um, but two, we can't, that doesn't mean we just do nothing to address uh, homelessness in our communities, uh, but that housing is the real solution. And that means uh, both housing the people who are currently homeless and helping them off of the streets, uh, but also solving the long-term crisis of the lack of affordable housing in our communities. Um, so, and, and that's going to have uh, net positive benefits uh, for all of the individuals involved, but for the communities as a whole as well. Um, so whether it's uh, the reduced cost um, to school districts for having to provide services 
uh, for homeless students and, um, you know, the educational benefits uh, to the students who are going to have stable uh, home lives as opposed to needing to transition um, from school to school, from house to house, and, and having that distraction in their lives. You know, those kinds of educational benefits are going to accrue um, to the communities over the long term, but they're going to be people, you know, uh, better adjusted, uh, children more prepared to, to get jobs in the long run. Um, but even in the short run, as I said, uh, communities that provide the housing have seen cost savings in the very first year of uh, of uh, the, the programs um, when they put them in place. Um, so in, in Utah, for example, um, the average cost of emergency room visits and jail stays for an average homeless person was about $16,000. Uh, over the course of a year, whereas the cost of providing an apartment and a social worker to provide services along with it was only $11,000. Um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, providing housing rather than um, handcuffs uh, saved the city um, about 64% on their jail costs. Um, and so, you know, these are these are costs that... Um, are immediately accrued to, to the budget, but you, as I said, you do need to have those more politically challenging conversations up front about um, providing the investment and um, and providing the site and, and you know the necessary supports to make the the programs work. Um, so I you know I think that's but that is a way forward is um, incentives like having the Department of Justice come into our lawsuit and say. We don't think this is constitutional, um, and so that should provide notice for a lot of communities that uh, they need to be having an honest conversation rather than trying to sweep the problem under the rug by providing criminalizing laws. Um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development has included some funding incentives in their grant streams for communities uh, that take steps to end and prevent criminalization of homelessness. Um, so there, there's... Uh, lots of efforts from the federal level uh, to try and get local government to have a more honest conversation about this and say criminalization is off the table um, and in the absence of that, what can we be doing affirmatively to address the problem of homelessness in our community as a crisis, as a social issue, not as a criminal justice issue. And that's, that's I think, really the way forward. Thank you very much, Sherrick. That was the end of our podcast with Eric Taz from the National Law Centre on Homelessness and Poverty. Please look out for the Housing Not Handcuffs campaign and go to nlchp.org. That's nlchp.org for more information. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.